Thank you. And uh, Steve, were you were you back there playing the keyboard on that? He'll be wanting double time, but he's not going to get it. That was good. I enjoyed it this morning. Thank you very much. Well, today we come to conclude the series in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for some weeks now. And as Jesus comes to the end of the sermon, he emphasizes several issues that are very important. He said, first of all, that the path of your life determines your destiny. He reminds us that there are two paths we can choose. There is a broad way that leads to destruction, and he said many people are on that path. There is a narrow way that leads to life, and he says there are few who are on that path. But the emphasis that he gives there is that the path you take determines your destiny. And then he reminds us that the fruit of our lives reveal the root of our lives. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, we do what we do because of who we are. The things we do, we do because of who we are. And then today, as he comes to conclude, he says that the foundation on which you build your life determines your security. Now, take your Bibles, turn with me, Matthew chapter 7, verse number 24, and we conclude this sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Not long ago, I was watching television, flipping through the channels, and I came to one of those Time Life infomercials where they are playing these classic songs from yesterday. And as I listened to them, I thought, well, those can't be classic songs because those were the songs that were popular when I was growing up. But that's what they said they were. So I I don't know exactly where that idea came from. But there was one that I was listening to that I always enjoyed, and that was the Platters singing The Great Pretender. Now, I could break into that and sing a little bit, but the choir's not ready to back me up. So I'm not going to. But as I listened to that, The Great Pretender, I thought, you know, if there is anyone who qualifies for that title, it has to be Satan. Satan is the great pretender. Now, here's the thing with Satan. He desires to be God, so he pretends to be God. And in order to get you as his follower, he tries to deceive us that we get on the wrong path and we build our lives on the wrong foundation. And there are many examples of those who were deceived by Satan. The first being Eve. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, there's an irony there to me, because we have the idea that if we can give one 
a good environment and a good life and all those things that that person is going to be good, they're going to follow the Lord and so forth. But when I look at Eve, she had a perfect environment. She had a perfect relationship to God. She must have had a perfect relationship to her husband who was created for her by God. In fact, she didn't have to hear Adam talking about what a great cook his mother was. But then on the other hand, he didn't have to hear from her about all the men she could have married who turned out. So when I look at her, I see that she had a perfect environment and yet she was deceived. The Bible says in Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Do you see that? See, he is the great pretender. He is the deceiver. And he was able to deceive Eve even in a perfect environment. The Pharisees also were deceived. Now, the Pharisees were very religious. They were very committed to their doctrine, legal, legalistic in their doctrine. They were admired by the public. Everyone looked up to them because they were such good, upstanding citizens. And yet the Bible says that they were deceived. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So here are the Pharisees who were extremely religious, and yet they were deceived. Jesus tells a story about a farmer who had had bumper crops one year. Everything turned out for him. And he had more crops, he had more grain than he knew what to do with. He said, what am I going to do with all this bounty that I have? And then he said, I know what I'll do. He said, I'll tear down the barns that I have and build bigger ones. And then I'm going to enjoy life. I'm, I'm going to enjoy the rest of my days. And what did Jesus say? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. The point I'm making is that when Jesus came to the end of this sermon, one of the things that he emphasizes is that Satan is the great pretender, so be careful that you are not deceived by him. And he tells us how we can be deceived. He said sometimes we are deceived by false prophets. Verse number 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The false prophets come pretending to be sheep when in fact they are ravenous wolves. There are a couple of ways that Satan attacks the church, the people of God. One is persecution that comes from without. The other is penetration that comes from within. And Jesus here is speaking about penetration. He is speaking about the false prophets who come into the church and they begin to erode the doctrine, the foundation of the church. Now, I believe that penetration is more dangerous than persecution. Because historically, when the church has been persecuted, the church has become stronger. 
But when the false prophets come in and begin to erode the doctrine of the church, the church becomes weaker and it falls apart. Because it has no foundation since it has been eroded. Dr. W. Criswell, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, for so many years, said that the false prophets are like termites in the church. They are eating away at the foundation, and sometimes we don't even realize it. Folks, I think that is what is happening to so many churches today, that the false prophets have come in, and they have declared that the Word of God is not the Word of God. They have rejected the truths of God's Word, and so the church has become weak, and we are not salt, and we are not light in this world that so desperately needs it because false prophets have come in, and they have taken us away from the foundation of God's Word. Jesus said, be aware of the false prophets who come in and erode the teachings of God's Word. We can also be deceived by false religion. There are only two kinds of religion, false and true. That's really all there are is false and true. And Jesus here speaks about religion that was false. He said they have right doctrine in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So these people to whom Jesus is referring referred to him as Lord. I mean, they seem like that they were right. They did impressive deeds in verse number 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I don't know how that strikes you, but that's impressive to me. These people about whom Jesus is speaking say, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we teach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Lord, did we not perform miracles in your name? And yet the Bible says that they were deceived. Look at verse number 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are people who had been deceived even though they appeared to be good religious people. Another way that we can be deceived is by right desires. There are some people who think that they are right with God because they desire certain things. You know what? Whether one is saved or lost, whether one is a Christian or not, there are some desires we all share. We all want to be forgiven. Who doesn't want to be forgiven? We all want peace. You've watched enough beauty pageants to know that when the contestant is being interviewed and asked the question, well, if you become Miss Bug Tussle, that is a town in Oklahoma, if you become Miss Bug Tussle, what do you want? Oh, I want world peace. We all want world peace. So there are some things that we, we want to be comfortable. We, we want to be successful. Now, honestly, when you are watching on television and you see the, the um, Reader's Digest Clearinghouse Sweepstakes or whatever that thing is, and people have this big check and they're jumping up and down, whether you're saved or lost, you think, man, I could jump up and down for that. I would like to have, we all want that, whether a person is saved or lost. We all want a good life. We all want to go to heaven. Who wants to go to hell? 
So there are some people who have been deceived because they think, I want good things or I have good desires, then I must be a child of God. But folks, there are some things we all want, whether a person is a Christian or not. So Jesus comes to the end of the sermon, and as he does, he warns us of the great pretender. He said, Satan deceives us. Be careful you're not deceived. He deceives through false prophets. He, receives through, he deceives through false religion. And he deceives through right desires. Jesus is simply saying, make sure you're not deceived. Being deceived does not exempt from the penalty of being wrong. See, that's the thing that you have to be aware of. Being deceived does not exempt one from the penalty of being wrong. The Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. That's what Moses said, be sure your sin will find you out. So that's the point that Jesus is making here, and he illustrates it with two houses. Now, as I look at these two houses, there are some similarities. First of all, there's similarity in desire. Both of the men wanted a house. So they had the same desire. Probably they were similar in design. Both houses were made of stone, I assume. Three bedrooms, fireplace, two camel garage. So they, they, were, they were similar in their desi- uh, design. But there was one big difference. One critical difference. What was it? The foundation. The difference between the two houses, I believe to have been similar. The big difference was the foundation. In 1174, an Italian architect worked on a bell tower for the city of Pisa. The name Pisa means marshy land, which should have been a clue. But he really didn't pay attention to the foundation. And he built the bell tower that began to lean. Now it is 17 feet out of plumb. And scientists tell us that eventually the leaning tower of pizza will become the fallen tower of pizza. In our text, we see a foundational issue. There's the wise man in verse number 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now, the wise man planned carefully and he dug deep to build his house. He built it upon the rock. The word that is used there means bedrock. So he dug all the way down to the bedrock and he built the foundation of his house On the bedrock. Foolish man, verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Now, he gave little attention to where he was building his house. He built a house. I'm sure the design was beautiful. He built a house, but he gave little attention as to where he was building it. Now, Barclay gives some interesting insight about the possibility of this building site. Barclay wrote, There was many a gully, which in summer was a pleasant sandy hollow, but was in winter a raging torrent of rushing water. He might well have built his house in the dried-up bed of a river 
And when the winter came, his house would disintegrate. I have seen those places many times in Israel. It'd be an area that is sandy, it's flat, it looks as if it would accommodate a house, a building of some sort. It is simply a dried up riverbed. And during the rainy season, the waters begin to flow and that place becomes a riverbed. This man paid not enough attention to realize that he was building a house in the middle of a dried up riverbed. You see, there are always consequences to our decisions. I I wish somehow that I could emphasize that to the degree that it would be indelibly written on your heart. Folks, there are always consequences to the decisions we make. Now, look at verse number 25. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. But look at verse 27. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell and great was its fall. Now, you will notice that both houses experienced the same force of nature. One of them wasn't exempt. There are people today who are told, if you become a Christian, you're exempt from all this nonsense. No, you're not. You're going to experience it just like everybody else. And that's what you see here. The Bible says that the rain pounded against both of them. Now, you know that this story has to be about more than houses and storms. There has to be a spiritual element to it. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave it a spiritual element. I don't know where he got it, to be honest, uh, but I have respect for him, and so I'm going to go with what he said. Writing about rain, he said, I think he means something like illness, loss, or disappointment, something going wrong in your life. We all experience disappointment, all of us. Saved, unsaved, we all experience them. Business deals go bad. Relationships falter. We all have those disappointing things happen to us in life. We all experience failure. Now, I think probably the most difficult failure to deal with is when there is failure within our family. I think that's that's the hardest to deal with. There is a passage of Scripture that I've referred to many times because it clarifies some things for me. There have been so many times when I've had good, godly Christian people come to me and say, you know, I've tried to raise my kids right and do all these things, and this happened. What happened? There's a passage of Scripture in Ezekiel chapter 18. It tells a story about a bad man who had a good son. And it tells about a good man who had a bad son. Now, when a bad man has a good son, we rejoice in it. But when a good man has a bad son, that confuses us. Why why does that happen? The the point that is being made in Ezekiel chapter 18 is that everyone makes decisions for themselves as to how they're going to live their life. But we are especially unsettled when we try to do right, we try to bring our kids up right, and then they don't turn out. We all experience that. We all experience grief, the loss of a, of a loved one, the death of a loved one. We experience that. And so he says that that's what the rain refers to, those disappointments, those failures, those difficulties in life. And then Jones says that the floods represent the world's temptations. We all are tempted by the world. Some are enticed by riches. 
I have, uh, in my ministry, I have known so many guys who did not yield to the temptation of immorality, but they did yield to the temptation of riches. That's a temptation, too. That money becomes our God, that money becomes more important to us than it's supposed to be. Money's important, but it is a temptation. And then there is the temptation of fame. Are you as surprised as I when you learn that some popular singer or famous movie star or someone started out in the church? I mean, they got their start in the church and they were singing. At least we thought they were singing for the Lord. And then they become more popular than, than that, can make a good living. And they, they leave. They succumb to the temptation. Power. There are some who are tempted by power. So the world entices us, but if the world can't entice us to follow after Satan, then it persecutes us. The world will try to entice you to follow after Satan. The world will try to entice you to leave following after God. But if it can't entice you, then it will persecute you, which is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul was enticed by the world, but he said, now when I compare what the world has to offer and what God has to offer, he says it is garbage in comparison. So what happened to him? Then he was persecuted. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken. And then Jones says that when refers to the attacks of Satan. So in verse number 23b, he says, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The point is, there is a penalty. Folks, if, if you decide that you're going to build your life on a faulty foundation, a foundation that is not solid, there's a penalty. There's a penalty in this life, and there's a penalty in the life to come. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He said, be careful that you're not deceived. And understand there are consequences to the decision that you make. And then thirdly, he says, but there is a great possibility in Christ. Now, how then can you and I build our lives and live our lives so that it is satisfying to us and pleasing to God? Well, first of all, you have to consider the building site. Where are you building? And uh, you know that if you were to buy a house, you have to, it is required that you get a survey of that property. Why? Because it gives information about the past. All right? Now, had this man taken a survey concerning where he was building his house, he could have avoided what happened to him. But he didn't get the survey. He ignored the past. But let me ask you a question about something that is more important. When you're making decisions about your life, are you considering the consequence by looking at the past? What has happened in the past is a pretty good indicator as to what is going to happen in the future if you follow the same path. I watch watch people who are tempted and get involved in drug abuse, alcohol abuse. And I think, my heavens, did you never stop to see what happened to those people who preceded you and did the same thing? How their lives turned out? 
I watch people who get involved in an adulterous affair, have a wife, have children, whatever, and they get involved in that. Now, I'm, I'm sure that there's a certain excitement to it at the time. But, but I think, do you, do you never pause long enough to look back and see how it's turned out for others? Do you never consider that? Whenever we are tempted to get involved in an unscrupulous business deal, I think, do you not pause long enough to look and see what happened to others who did something similar? Folks, when we are making decisions, we need to look to the past and see how it turned out for someone else. Look at the past so that we can learn from it and then consider the future. How am I living my life and where will this path lead me? I've told you on many occasions, I think, that I, I always tried to encourage my kids, when you're making a decision, don't ever take a path. You don't know where it's going. Because when you get there, you might not be pleased with it. Take a long look. What path are you on? Are you on the broad way that leads to, to, to destruction, or are you on the narrow path that leads to life? Check the foundation. What are you building your life on? I believe that there's only one foundation that is worthy of your life. I really believe that. You might think it's quaint. You might think, well, it's not for me. And maybe not. But I really believe there's only one foundation that is worthy of your life. Folks, you only have one life. You only have one. Don't mess it up. That foundation is Jesus Christ. He is the only solid foundation on which you can build a real life. Today we conclude this Sermon on the Mount series. And it's a beautiful sermon to me. The way it is constructed and what is said. Jesus begins, let me remind you. He began with speaking about the character of the Christian. That's the beatitude. You want to know what a Christian is? Look at the Beatitudes. He says, this is what I have, uh, this is what I expect. This is what a Christian is. He said, if you live out the Beatitudes, then you become people of influence. You become salt and light if you're living out the Beatitudes. He tells us then how we are to demonstrate this life. He said, by the giving of alms, by prayer, by fasting, and by treating people as you want them to treat you. And then after he gives us that, he says, now there are two paths that are available to you. There's a broad path and there's a narrow path. The broad path leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. There are two paths. Outside the gates of those two paths, he says, there are false prophets who are trying to lead you the wrong way. So he concludes by, making, by saying, make sure that you're building your life on a solid foundation. Make sure you're building on a solid foundation. The great architect Frank Lloyd Wright built the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. It's one of the most earthquake-prone cities in the world. Knowing that, as he began to design the hotel, he built it, the foundation, on 60 feet of soft mud. Now, as a result of that, if there were an earthquake then it provided a shock-absorbing effect. But it was also strong enough to keep the hotel standing. 
Shortly after building that hotel, there was the worst earthquake that Tokyo had had in 52 years. Buildings all around it fell, but the Imperial Hotel stood because the foundation was good. Folks, I can assure you that in your life, the wind is going to blow against you, and the rains are going to pound you, and the lightning is going to flash. So my question is, what is the foundation on which you're building your life? When the storms come, will you stand? Our Father in God, I pray today that you will help us to examine honestly, truthfully, the foundation on which we're building our lives. And Lord, as you reveal to us that our foundation is weak, that it is wrong, that today we will commit to building upon Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that today we'll check our foundations. In Christ's name I ask, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand and the choir's going to sing. We extend an invitation. My friend, if you're here without Jesus Christ, I, I pray that you'll come receive him today. He is the only foundation worthy. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. They sing as they sing. You come, I'll greet you as you do.